to episode 178 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 23rd of May 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. We mentioned Eurovision last time. We almost won. Well, we did win, really, didn't we? <laughs> anyway, let's get on with some news. The first one is there's not going to be a Fostalk Live this year. I think I've said it in a few places, but I just I want to officially put it out there. It's not going to happen. I don't have time. And also, it's just not a good idea to be in that tiny basement with loads of people. But Alex from Self Hosted is going to organize an outdoor meetup in London on the 6th of August. He doesn't have many details at the moment, but he's got a meetup page that we'll link to. And he's trying to gauge interest in this to see how many people are actually going to turn up. So maybe in a pub with a garden or something like that. Hopefully I'll be able to go to it. Um, I'm very busy at the moment with work stuff as well as personal stuff. All good, though. Don't worry about that. That's pretty much why I'm not doing the Fostalk Live thing, because I could have found a more suitable venue or something, but I just don't have time, unfortunately. But yeah, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. If you're around London on August the 6th, then uh, sign up. Say that you want to come. You don't have to come if you sign up, but just if you're interested in coming. Anyway, the first proper bit of news then that people seem to be getting a bit overexcited about, and that is that NVIDIA is taking the first step towards open source Linux GPU drivers. Am I wrong, or is this not the huge story that people are making it out to be? I'm with you, Joe. I I don't think it is that big a deal. It, it's certainly a step in the right direction, but it's not the um, the exciting news that it was blown up to be. I completely agree with Will as well. I think NVIDIA's done things like this before, kind of shown good intent, and then nothing has ever come of it. And I hope it changes, and I hope it's the beginning of something more significant. I've certainly, for the first time, I had cause to visit NVIDIA's forums because I had a plasma um, compositing bug. And there are discussions and bug fixes on the NVIDIA forums for this. So that's a really great sign. I don't know how long that kind of thing's been going on. So there is a kind of warming, obviously, at NVIDIA towards Linux and the desktop and how important it might be. So I reserve judgment, but I'd like to see more. The general gist of it is that they moved a lot of the what was in the driver into firmware, and then the new open source driver just calls into those um, API calls from in, in firmware. So all of the sort of secret source is still secret, and they've just open sourced the the boring plumbing bits. Is that a shim? Is that a shim in parlance? Yeah, I think so. So it is going to have a positive effect. It's not going to be straight away, but maybe in a year or so it's going to be probably as easy as running an AMD card is now if you've got the right hardware, because that's another aspect of this. This is not going back to the old hardware. This is relatively modern hardware and beyond. But anything that makes Linux on the desktop easier has got to be good. So I think that it's definitely a positive thing that's happened here. But as Hector Martin said in his Twitter thread about it, we're not actually gaining any freedoms here for the, you know, the real free software people. We're just gaining some convenience. Yeah, and hopefully it will improve NVIDIA driver compatibility on Linux, which has been a bit flaky the last few years, especially when maybe some people are thinking of moving from Windows to Linux for their gaming, and lots of gamers have NVIDIA hardware, current NVIDIA hardware, such as the RTX series that needs to, you need to have to run these new drivers. Okay, good news for you, Will. We covered this a while ago, but Google has backtracked on its legacy G Suite account shutdown. So as long as you're using it for personal use only, you can keep your custom domain and your email problem is solved for now. 
Yeah, this is good news. And uh, what I think a lot of people predicted would happen, uh, and Google underestimated the sort of public feeling for how attached people were to their email that they've had for the last 10 years or whatever it was. Yeah, good news all around. Now, for some people who have already made the switch via clicking the button that says, I will pay for this, and then were offered something like, I don't know, six months, nine months of free service, they do have to go and contact Google support and basically be backported to the original free version. I was really apprehensive that that process was going to be either understood by their support team or even possible. Um, and to start with, it was very difficult. You click on the support button, you have to talk to a chatbot, and eventually I spoke to a human being. But when I did, they knew what I was asking about. And, well, as far as I can tell, they filled out the right forms and opened a case for me, and it will all just happen. Um, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm, sh I'm sure that it will do. So, yeah, good news all round. It, do contact support if you need to. They do know what they're talking about, and they'll get you back on the free product. Google's famous customer support experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, of course, obviously, if you did use it for work, they wouldn't know because they wouldn't be checking all your emails anyway. You do have to reply to an email and copy and paste in their, in Google's words, copy and paste this phrase that says, you know, I am not a commercial user and I will only use it for personal things, Cubs Honor, and then send it back to them. And that's you agreeing to their terms and conditions. I hope nobody from your work emails you accidentally on your time off <laughs> to that account. Well, all's well that ends well, hopefully. All right, Phelim, something that I found on xdadevelopers.com. You're a horrible person, you. Well, I thought it might be fun to troll you. So this article is called Chromebooks are the perfect place to teach yourself about Linux. And Richard Devine wrote this article where he talks about how he bought a Chromebook at the start of lockdown and used it to teach himself Linux. And he went into it having never used the terminal before and now actively uses the terminal in Linux quite a lot, has learnt loads, and is making a pretty decent case as far as I can see. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I am sure you could, in theory, say that 1978 Space Invaders taught Elon Musk how to develop SpaceX, but that would also be bullshit, too. Come on. <sighs> really? I don't know. Okay, maybe, maybe this one case, this happened by accident. But I really, really don't believe anybody is doing this. It's very good for old Richard there. I hope he has a great time, but I just don't believe there is a single other person who has done this. I think you're wrong. Because the beauty of Linux on a Chromebook is that it's an optional extra that you can, at least in theory, get rid of and start again without pissing around doing dual booting or even having to manage virtual machines yourself. And meanwhile, you've got a perfectly usable Chromebook with a perfectly usable browser and everything else that goes with that, plus Android apps as well from the Play Store. So I think it's a reasonable argument that Chromebooks may well be a good way for people to get into Linux. Because I know that to you, Linux is Linux on the desktop, but for the vast majority of people who use Linux, it's fucking not. It is Linux via SSH and automated Ansible and Kubernetes and whatever. Well, it's still all those things too. I mean, it's my slew of pies knock around places all that it's not been you know told what you can or can't do with the os i mean yeah i mean look if this works great i just i'm slightly more pessimistic about it i think and also you've given money to google and they're still spying on you it's all evil so there that's what i say about it <laughs> <laughs>
On to a bit of admin then. First, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in contact with us, show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash latenightlinux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. Okay, there's a post on Drew DeVault's blog, When Will We Learn? And it's about Rust's recent supply chain attack. And he's got a list, which is very much non-exhaustive, of incidents like this that we've had with NPM, PyPy, Snap, RubyGems, and now this Rust one. And he just makes the old argument, which I think, Phelan, you very much agree with, which is that distributions are there to put someone in between the vendor or author of the software and the user. And that we, we've just seen it so many times. NPM is the, the biggest one, where people delete their library or just swap it out for malware or typo squat it, where they take an underscore out or something like that. And I, I must say, I'm somewhat convinced by his arguments. It's kind of the beauty of a distro. I mean, yes, people will say, oh, it's not checked exhaustively, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. It might not be, but there are some checks that go in and there's also the ability for them to pull it back out again. Whereas if you're doing all this on your own, nobody's coming around to fix your Python install in your virtual environment. You've got to go fix that yourself. At least if a package is in a repo that's causing issues, they can get that themselves there. No system is perfect, but at least you have another set of eyes looking at it, someone who actually knows what they're doing. And I really don't understand why we want to be, you know, aping all these other systems that are really poor. Like, you know, downloading, like, oh, the, the way the Mac works with a DMG file, you know, or you might want to do app image. And then you've got things like Snap, Flathub, where they want to get, you know, we need to get as many people out of the way as possible so the developers themselves can upload it. It's like, no, I don't want just the developer to upload it because I don't trust that they're doing the right job. And that's leaving out them being malicious. I don't disagree with any of that. I think you're right. But how do you address the problem where you are an active user of a given library and there's a bug and that bug is fixed upstream and now you've got to wait six months before that finally arrives on the machines that you can target with your software? I didn't say I had all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's fair enough. But you know, this is a this is a real problem. The alternate that is that in six months' time that new version has got an entirely new set of bugs and then different problems that they've balls up some way so just it being new doesn't make it better uh, it might fix a particular issue that you might be having right now but i think there's also the issue of you know has to go through all that testing has to, you know 
not just on the distro side, but on your acceptance side and your side too, you might be running some software like that is a godforsaken piece of archaic stuff that must have everything checked. And that's why the likes of Red Hat exist, where they backport the crustiest of crusty all the way 10 years back and Ubuntu's doing it as well. So I don't know. I think it's a really hard one to, to cover. Well, it is because the flip side to that argument is that you've got a version which is definitely broken. <laughs> The way that Snap do it with the with, with allowing trusted individuals who have somehow identified themselves to staff at the company and have been given permission to push files almost directly into your operating system seems like a good model. Now, you can't protect from everything, as you say, but that seems like a good model. Um, and I'm sure that NPM and PyPy and those other things cargo do do some kind of um checking to say that you are who you say you are that you are a trusted developer of this software but then the you have people that are pulling things straight out of github like go for example pulls things straight out of github and that could be literally anyone so oh i i don't know it's a very very tricky problem to solve but going back to the buggy software in the distribution and having to wait six months for it isn't that just bad distro maintainership if there are really bad bugs that need to be fixed. Features, fair enough, waiting six months for, but bugs that are bad enough to warrant a whole new packaging system that has these vulnerabilities or potential vulnerabilities designed into it, that just doesn't seem like good maintainership to me. I think most of these problems are caused by people wanting to install the latest and the greatest or something that isn't available in their distro by default. And that's where the real problem is, people just wanting something now. You're saying the real problem is software churn and people wanting the new shiny. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable too. I mean, we all do it. And I, yeah, it's a really difficult problem to solve. There's lots of people trying to solve it. Popular distros succeed. I quite like AUR. I quite like the way that you can look at the contents of a package and build from source. At least if you're forced to watch something build from source that's brand new, you can see what it's actually doing. But then who's to say what the code's doing? He said he uses Arch. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. I never say that normally. <laughs> sure. Snap's pretty good in the fact that things are contained. At least there's only so much damage they can do. And if it happens to be like the 2048 clone doing a cryptocurrency miner, at least that's just CPU and memory resources rather than something worse, like you know, taking over your root file system. And the ability to shut it down and stop anybody else from getting it. And being a trusted voice to say, if you installed this, then you should stop doing that. I think that's quite an important part of it, you know, being able to reach out to your community and tell them when something's gone wrong. If you're just pulling off of random GitHub pages, then, well, good luck. And good luck tracking on the versions too. You know, you could have several hundred versions of various plugins that have come down in a particular build of a piece of software. And unless you're really, you know, if you're just saying, oh, I can't wait to get this and go, and you just hit go, 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 and you see pages scrolling past, if you've not taken any due diligence, any of that software, I mean, you also open yourself up to the developer pulling away that library at some point and pulling the house of cards down on top of you. You know, it's it's auditing. And uh, I don't think anybody in real life wants to do any of that because it's horrible. That's so true. I just recently went through and removed all the PPAs that I don't use. And God, I must have had 30 or 40 of them. Oh, and then, and with PPAs, anyone can take over them really afterwards and publish whatever they want in there. And I could, you know, an app update and would have just installed them. So yes, you're right. Auditing. The system's just broken. 
Everybody should write their own bash scripts for everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised we haven't solved this in the last five minutes, to be honest. No, no, we're going to charge a consultancy fee for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the world is pretty fucked up at the moment. And the other night I was thinking it might be funny to try and be positive for a change on this show. So I decided we're going to have a Linux love-in. We're all going to have to say something, at least one or two things, that we love about Linux and open source. Graham, go first. There's a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind, it's a bit of a cliche, and I know there are so, so many fucking idiots in the community, but by and large, a lot of the people that I interact with and a lot of people I've been able to meet through Linux and interact with have been wonderful, amazing, and I've made some great friends. You guys and all the other people that I've kind of worked with and interacted with, there's so many good people. A lot of them are quiet and non-public. Um, but I think generally the Linux community is brilliant and very supportive, um, basically because we have to bootstrap our own support. Um, so there's a necessity to it. And I, I love it for that. Um, and I'd really miss it if we didn't have it. The other thing, which is I've kind of mentioned before, but what I really love about Linux, the most important thing about it for me is that no one forces me into a specific way of thinking or doing something. If Arda, for example, gets updated and he changes the whole way that it works, I don't have to update it. And if I feel so inspired, I can carry on maintaining the old version. And that's the most powerful thing for me in Linux and open source is that you don't have to move to Windows 11 equivalent if you don't want to. And if you've got enough people on your side who feel the same way, you can fork it and do whatever you want. And that's really powerful for me because I've got a crap memory. When I've learned something, I want to like just keep using it. And I don't want other people to go ahead and change it without me wanting it to be changed. And that's what's kept me with it for all this time. I was going to say people as well. I think that's what we'd all go to first. And I suppose related to that is a sort of sense of belonging almost. You can just go to a conference or a meetup and you just know that you can bump into someone and you've just got that thing in common already. You can just ask them, you know, what distro do you use? You might not even have to. Well, indeed, <laughs> some of them will tell you straight away. But, you know, you've just got that instant connection. And I'm sure that's the same with a lot of uh, hobbies or interests in life generally. But that also gives you a sort of, almost sense of superiority as well like i remember back when i used to go out of the house before the event and i'd see people with a laptop and i'd almost like assume that they'd be running linux but then i'd see they were running windows oh yeah you're a normal person of course it's windows on there and that just gives you sort of this smug sense of superiority somehow and i do like that my reasons are very very similar to both yours and graham's um well, I remember when I first started getting in onto the internet and discovering software that did things in new and interesting ways and, and that solved all these sort of different problems, it always ran on Linux. And there, it seemed to be this, this big mountain that you had to climb over in order to get access to all this cool stuff. But once you put that effort in and you sort of gained entry into this, um, um, this, this club, then suddenly you found all of these niches were catered for all of the weird stuff that you're interested in sending data packets over radio or making your own pbx or uh, printing to some archaic plotter or talking to a really old modem that you had hanging around all of these things were catered for by linux and nobody else and when you got into those niches you found within those a lot of people who were interested in the same things that you were 
and would talk to you about it and you would learn from them. And it's that learning that I think was really, uh, that really makes it appealing. Yeah, that's true, actually. You never stop learning. There's always something new. No matter who you talk to or where you go or what project you find out about, there's always something that you don't know in a good way because it gives you an opportunity to learn something. Yeah, and and the people who have that additional knowledge, generally speaking, are happy to share it with you. Back in the, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s, if you had some sort of secret information about something, you tended to keep it to yourself. You weren't really uh, free and easy with sharing that information, like the cheats for a game or something like that. Whereas the, the Linux community generally seemed to be very happy to talk about, document, publicize the stuff, uh, and it was all there for you to, to read and dig into. Phelim, you're not allowed to say KDE. I wasn't going to, I was going to be more abstract than that, actually. Yeah, for me, it was info as well, because I remember being in the mid to late 90s going to university and the difficulty in doing things, not understanding, you know, you had to go do C. We were given like a 30 minute lecture and then you're like thrown into it. And, you know, there was like three books in the library of several thousand people that you could get access to. And the books themselves were like a hundred quid each, whatever. Whereas now, if you look at all the information available, it can be both a blessing and a curse. But for want of trying, you could be reading for a very long time before you run out of something. And there's always somebody out there who's, you know, willing to help out with stuff. You'll find them somewhere, IRC, whatever. And the other aspect of it is the power that it gives to users. So I remember in the bad old days of running a Windows network where you couldn't do various projects because well, oh, we don't, we'd have to get licenses for those or, you know, we'd have to use the MSDN license, test it, and then we'd have to apply for that. But each of those is going to be this much, blah, blah, blah. You couldn't just go and do it. Whereas with Linux system, you go, hmm, let's try it. I know we'll fire up a few VMs, stick an OS on it and try it out. Oh, yeah, and there we go. And effectively, you have your live system there once you put it out onto proper system. That just gives you so much power as a user. It takes it away from the big company. It gives it to you. And that's a really powerful thing. And I think it's why we're so much better in the BSDs, because I had to get a dig in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just made me realize uh, a couple of other things. There's always seven ways to do something. No matter what it is, what problem you want to solve, there's at least seven ways to do it. And I love that. I love that flexibility. And that's somewhat true with other operating systems and other software generally, but not quite to the same extent it is with Linux and open source. Like You can always find another way to solve the problem and i love that but that also leads into it's almost always free as in beer obviously not always but unlike a lot of hobbies like say you want to get into model railways or or you know drone racing or whatever it's really fucking expensive whereas linux if you're a poor student you can get into you can blag an old laptop or desktop off someone and there will be a Linux distribution that you can install on it. And that, to me, is really cool. You can try all this cool new stuff all the time without having to have any financial burden beyond the electricity to run it. Yeah, you're right. And it's really quite exciting. Um, we've already mentioned learning, but that's so important. If you do happen to live somewhere where you don't have any training facilities or anything like that, Basically, with a Linux machine, you could do almost anything. With a few Raspberry Pis, you can get a small cluster going. All the information is there. 
It's not proprietary. You can see the conversations where things are being developed. It's incredible. I mean, we're kind of taking it for granted now, which is sad. But there was a time when you just couldn't do that. You couldn't even share your cool code that you'd written in, you know, Visual Studio because the license just didn't permit it. Yeah. Whereas now GitHub is the standard. But if you want to run your own GitLab instance, then you can just do it. I also really love the fact that nothing ever really becomes redundant. <laughs> you know, you've still got old machines. You can, as long as you can usually get something running on it and you can usually do something useful with it, um, you know, never really have to throw anything away, which, you know, my room here is a testament to that. <laughs> um, but I love that. It's funny you should mention that, Graham, because Linux After Dark that's coming out on Friday, you don't know this, so it was an accidental great plug. But that was the challenge on that episode. We talked about some other stuff as well, but the challenge was find your oldest piece of hardware that can still do something useful. Oh, cool. And it was a lot of fun, so uh, do check that out. And if anyone's got ideas, then uh, do email in and let us know. Show at linuxafterdark.net for what you think is the old bit of hardware that you own that you could do something useful with. And uh, the, the, the conceit of it was, well, what is useful? Well, that's up to you. You decide what's useful. But yeah, we couldn't really realistically do that with any other operating system, I don't think. We couldn't do that challenge. I suppose maybe you could install XP and try and do something. Get owned. Yeah, exactly. In the fastest time possible. Yeah, but look at the kind of those IoT devices that Will was talking about um, a couple of episodes ago where the company stopped supporting them. But because they were based on Linux, you could put your flash your own image on there and carry on using them. It's incredible. There really is a lot to love about it. And I feel like we get a bit down too often about the whole thing. And that's why I thought it might be nice. But do email in what you love about Linux to show at latenightlinux.com. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them, and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, and if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop down at checkout and you can select late night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Let's do a quick KDE corner before we get out of here then. The first is that Lars Knoll is leaving the Qt company and he wrote a little bit about his history with Qt and working for various companies over the last 25 years. And he was a little bit cagey about what he's going to do afterwards, but... Uh, I think we have to acknowledge this, don't we? It's been an awfully long time. Yeah, he was there in the very early days, I think, worked with Matthias Ettrick, um, also was really responsible for KHTML, which obviously Apple took to become WebKit and Blink and everything else. Um, he was one of the main developers behind that um, and, and has led, well, he's been the CTO, but he also led the whole cute development for years and years and years. He was a bit cagey in his email, I thought, like implied that there were some reasons for it. Um, but I mean, I, I'm not surprised after so many decades that he wants to try something new. Yeah, it's a scarily long time that. Well, there's been quite a lot of upheaval mm. with the whole cute stuff. So I hope this isn't a bad sign, but I fear it may be. See, I didn't want to try and be negative. You see, I was trying to keep it positive. But now we've done all the positivity that we need for the next year or two. So don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah. So it looks like cute's in trouble to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, look to be to be slightly positive. Plasma six. 
29 have CI coverage now. And uh, there's another 10 that are waiting on. So it's all good. It's going to be fine. La la la. All right. So what is this uh, almost time to pick new goals then? Well, if you remember before Academy, they, well, apparently they have this rule of 15 weeks before Academy, they pick a new set of goals. This year was Wayland, Consistency and Apps. So Adam Zoppa has been writing that because they're getting close to that point again, they're going to start asking people to submit ideas. And also he's doing a video interview with the various, as they call them, goalkeepers of the people who previously uh, suggested the current set that we have. And so he has a, a video interview with Nico that we've seen many times before. And his was the consistency goal. And he talks about how it went, how the sort of changed aspect when they they got into it where you know they knew some things they'd never be able to change in such a short amount of time but then they also saw other stuff and you know he asked him how his ideals changed as he went through you know did it focus him and get him involved more and he said absolutely and that's why they're hoping that for this one which i think it's around june time or so is when they're going to pick it that they if they could get uh new people involved it would actually help them get more into the project, hopefully, as well. So I think it's quite a good system. It's a good interview, worth a listen. And uh, yeah, so Academy is in Barcelona the first week of October. So getting close. All I could think about there was Peter Shilton and David Seaman, I'm afraid. I don't know what you're referring to. Is this football? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's football. It's England goalkeepers from my youth. Excellent. <laughs> well, links in the show notes as usual. We better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll have some of your feedback and some discoveries. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Mm-hmm.